0: TED Audio Collective. Hello, dear listener. It's Manoush. I've been going through the zigzag inbox recently, and I have noticed a trend. For many of you, your work is in flux right now. It's unsettling. It's exciting. It's changing. Hi, Jenna. Manoush. This is Gail from Milwaukee again. Some of you are transitioning jobs. My problem is that I'm going to retrain to be a web developer. And
1: there are steps I have to take to get there. Part of that is retraining. And I'm a very impatient person. And what I really want to do is just jump to the end and be done with it.
0: Some of you are juggling various new roles.
1: I have this full-time job in media, which has me working rather odd hours. And then during the day, I am trying to be super dead.
0: And some of you are taking big risks.
2: I recently quit a not so stable job to try and start my own business and I just did my taxes and I had no idea, but I made the most money I've ever made last year and I was also the least stressed I'd ever been. Least
0: stressed ever? Uh, That's amazing. Because that's the dream, right? Make more money, do work we love, and be less stressed. I'm Manoush Zomorodi. And this is ZigZag, the podcast about the changing culture of business. Because finding the right work-life situation for yourself can require some zigging and zagging, changing direction, and then changing again. My co-founder Jen Poyant and I are certainly having to do that. As we figure out how to build our business, it's like every day feels momentous. Maybe you are also an entrepreneur, or maybe you have a new role at work. Or you just want to find new ways to stay motivated. The average American worker stays at a job for 4.2 years. And here's the good news. Whether you work from a co-working space, an open plan corporate office, or from home, there are lots of experiments going on in how we work. How we collaborate and the relationships we have with our co-workers is morphing. Bosses used to make all the decisions and you could like it or lump it, but now employers are thinking harder about how to retain their employees, whether it's with flexible hours or giving them more power, sometimes even removing bosses from the whole equation. It's really worth investigating what's going on out there, which is why for this episode, we have a special treat, a rundown of some of the most cutting-edge new ways people are trying to make the workplace work better. Perhaps you recognize the voice of our
1: guide. I'm an organizational psychologist, and I know it sounds like I could organize your closet, but I can't. (laughs) What I do is I study how to make work suck a little bit less.
0: Adam Grant is a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Fun fact, he got tenure at 28 years old, making him the youngest tenured professor at the Wharton School of Business ever. Adam also hosts Ted's Work Life podcast and writes prolifically about all things related to work, and he's agreed to walk us through some new concepts in making the workplace more harmonious and more efficient. Some of these ideas you might be familiar with, others you may not. Holacracy, anyone? How about radical candor? Some of these experiments are succeeding beautifully. Others are failing spectacularly. There is so much we can learn from all of them. We're gonna to get to work with Adam Grant right after a quick break.
2: Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer
1: from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write, it works fast generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI.
0: Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction.
1: Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block.
0: Ask your boss if Canva Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. We're back, it's ZigZag, I'm Anoush. And I think people are looking for more meaning in their work than ever before. I mean, I know there's that old trope that on our deathbed, no one ever says, I wish I spent more time at the office. But I don't know. I, I disagree. When I'm on my deathbed, I hope that I feel really good about the work that I've done. I'm definitely getting closer to that with the work we're doing here at Stable Genius Productions. Just so you know, our little office is in a somewhat swanky co-working space that used to be an abandoned warehouse in my neighborhood. It's the perfect place for a remote conversation with Adam Grant about how we are rethinking how we work. I am sitting in Gowanus, Brooklyn, in my co-working space, which has an audio booth, which is placed inconveniently next to the men's and women's bathrooms, which contain those extremely high-powered loud hand dryers. And I have to say, people here are very, very clean. They have very clean hands because they use them a lot. So if you hear that, I apologize.
1: I uh, I don't know if I can top that, but <laughs> this is Adam Grant. I am in my basement uh, in my house in the Philly suburbs. And I have a, a little recording studio down here, which is basically like a bat cave. So I can't see or hear really anything. And I definitely can't smell anything.
0: Nice. I'd been reading about all kinds of weird workplace trends, all designed to make teams work better together. But I wanted Adam's realistic take on which ones of these trends were actually making people's work and lives better and which ones were just kind of nonsense. So I want to start by the one that I am currently fascinated by, holacracy. Holacracy is a new way of structuring and running your organization that replaces the conventional
1: management hierarchy.
0: This is when a company, correct me if I'm wrong, they have no boss, or it's like a flat management style. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it's the idea behind Holacracy, at least as most Silicon Valley companies have tried to run it, is we're gonna get rid of bosses so you don't have to really report to one person. The Zappos version, I think, is probably the most advanced and evolved. Zappos organizes their whole company now into circles, and each circle has a purpose. And instead of like, having a job description, if there's a circle you're interested in joining, like a marketing circle, you make a case that you have something to add. And that way, you know, people basically have a say in creating their own jobs. They don't have to have a boss that they hate. And it's a pretty interesting utopian vision that I think probably works better in some places than others.
0: Okay. Yeah. There has been a lot of pushback on holacracy. A lot of people are like, why do you have to call them circles? In the old days, we called them teams. How is this any different? The other criticism I've heard is like, oh my God, in these flat places where there's no one in charge, nothing gets done because teams or circles sit around and talk and debate and actually no one is empowered (laughs) to make a decision. Have you seen that?
1: Yeah. I've seen a couple of companies try to adopt Holacracy and then abandon it really quickly when they they realize like, huh, there's a reason that managers exist. We didn't know this. Like hierarchy is almost a defining feature of (laughs) every social species on earth, right? So apes have hierarchies. Humans have hierarchy because often it's efficient and it helps with coordination. And when you get rid of that, suddenly, you know, many people don't know what to do. And you end up with a lot of people marching in different directions. But I think just because it's hard or it's unfamiliar doesn't mean it can't work. Uh There are a couple interesting examples that I think have been more sustainable. So to me, one of the cool things about the Zappos example is one of Tony Shea's ideas was to say, look, part of the problem with traditional holacracy is you end up with some circles that are really valued and others that are devalued. And it's not surprising that the circles that are important are the ones that make money for the company. And the ones that are kind of subservient are the ones that don't. right? And so Tony said, what if we actually give every circle its own P&L? So its own profit and loss statement. So they have a budget and they have to make revenue and the revenue ideally should exceed their expenses. And so, for example, like one of those centers or circles would be IT. And, you know, normally the IT department would kind of be a slave to other departments, but at Zappos now, if you need an IT problem fixed, IT actually charges you for that. And that's how they prove hmm. that they're adding value to the company, which is such an interesting and creative idea.
0: I'm wondering, though, what is the latest with Zappos and Holacracy? Because I had read that a couple of years after they started using that system, that Tony Shea, the CEO, gave his employees an ultimatum. You could either, like, you're either in with this new model or you can take a buyout. And then a third of Zappos's employees decided to leave the company. Is that because they just were, like, annoyed by it? Or what's your understanding of where it went wrong?
1: Yeah, I think they were still working out some kinks early on. And, you know, I think that, generally speaking, it's worth remembering that every time you make a change in an organization to solve one problem, you're going to create others. And so I think there were certainly people who missed the structure or, you know, they didn't have a clear role. You know, there were also people who just said, you know what, Like, I want to move up, and I don't know how I gain status ah. or get promoted in this system. And so I think it, huh. it created uncertainty for a lot of people, and some people did not want to tolerate that. For me, the jury is still out to see how that kind of experiment will play out. But there is a pretty sustained example at another company. It's not Holacracy per se, but it's self-management. Self-management taking initiative and ownership for one's role and responsibilities. This company is uh, is a manufacturer of tomato paste. So, Manish, hmm. if you've had a spaghetti sauce or pizza or ketchup in the last year, you probably actually eaten some of their uh, some of their product. I think they make roughly a quarter of the tomato paste in the US and they make hundreds of millions of dollars a year. And they have run this company for three decades without ever having a single boss.
0: How? Like, what made it work there?
1: Well, there was a founder, Chris, who came uh, from a trucking operation. And he really didn't like being told what to do. He also noticed that really good truckers, nobody was managing them all day, right? They drove out in their truck. And there's nobody looking over their shoulder to see where they're going. And they were intrinsically motivated. They were responsible, and he said, "Well, maybe we could build a whole company like that." And then they had to solve a few problems uh, that they, I think, tackled in just fascinating ways. So one is how do you let people have the freedom to create their own job, but still have a whole company that's that's working toward a a shared mission? Hmm. The way they solve that is they say, "Look, when you come in and you first join Morningstar." You're going to come in for a particular role and, you know, that might roughly be based on the last person who had a similar role. But as soon as you gain experience, you can actually rewrite your job description. And in fact, every year, everyone writes a letter about what their job is going to be in the coming year. And that letter is basically a statement of what do I want to be doing and what do I think should be my core responsibilities and tasks. But I have to do two things. One is, I have to explain how that job I want to do is going to contribute to Morningstar's broader mission. So I have to you know show that there's some alignment between what I do and the company's success. Mm-hmm. And then secondly, I have to go to the five to ten people who I'm going to be most interdependent with and convince them that my letter lays out what I should be doing. I kind of go around and I negotiate with my collaborators. Here's how I want to add value. Do you agree that this adds value? And then they have the same conversation with me. And then once I get their stamp of approval, I've just invented my own job. Part of this that's really tricky is people don't always agree. And so they had to build a process of gaining agreement. And you might find, for example, that your colleagues object to the job you want to do. Or the more extreme case of this is, Manoush, let's say you're my coworker. And you think I'm doing a really crappy job. And you know I don't have a boss. Can you fire me? Right. How would you think about that? They have a whole process for that. But how would you imagine that working?
0: I would think that they would need to pull together like a panel, like a jury almost, where you go in front of your peers and the case is argued. That would be my guess.
1: Yeah, that interestingly is very much what happened. Okay. Their gaining agreement process is if you try to fire me, I can either agree and say, you know what, Manoush, you're right. I'm really bad at my job and I'm going to leave. Or, <laughs> as, as would be more common, no, I think you're wrong. And I think you're the one doing a bad job. You should be fired. Oh, So then the two of us have to agree on a neutral third-party mediator, one of our colleagues, who is going to hear both sides and then make a judgment. But the judgment, just like in conflict mediation, is non-binding. And so like the mediator can say, you know what, Adam, you're wrong. You should go. And I can say, I still don't agree. And then it would go up to three colleagues oh my who God. would weigh in. And then I can still object. And then eventually the whole company would weigh in. And if I still won't agree, the founder, Chris, will make the final decision, which is kind of the only place where there's unilateral authority at the very end. But it very, very rarely gets to that.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like Morningstar, these, the tomato people, they kind of were the right size for this. But then also, and I know a lot of our listeners are small business owners. I'll speak for myself here. Jen and I, my co-founder and I, are struggling. Like, how do you build a small team where you want to empower people to take the initiative, to feel ownership over their work, to just, like, make the call for themselves? Because we're so busy. But at the same time, without them feeling like you're neglecting them or not coaching them or not giving them the sense that they're empowered. Yeah. How does it work, like, on the smaller scale?
1: I think the good news is we have decades of evidence that self-managed teams can work really well on a small scale. And lots of companies have been using them for a long time. A self-managed team is usually most effective when the work is highly interdependent. So you can't just go off and divide and conquer and then combine your work at the end of the day. You actually have to interact and communicate and, and work on some kind of shared document or product. When you think about designing a self-managed team, I think you want to do a few things. Number one, you say, okay, uh, let's be clear about who's in and who's out in this particular team. Number two, let's have them work together to agree on what the goal should be. Mm -hmm. And then number three, let's take a page out of the Morningstar playbook and recognize that just because you don't have a boss or a leader doesn't mean you can't have hierarchy. Ah. So Morningstar operates what they call a fluid dynamic hierarchy which means that a given person is in charge in their area of expertise, which I love because if you run a pure democracy, that means in every situation, everyone has an equal vote. And I don't think an efficient or effective organization should be run that way, right? There are going to be things that you're good at, Manoush, that you should be in charge for. And then there are things that are not your expertise where other people should lead you, right? And so what you do in the team is you try to identify everybody's strengths, and then you give people the chance to take ownership for areas that are really within their core expertise. And then you let them actually shift from leader to follower depending on the task or the domain.
0: It's just constant negotiation is what you're talking about. More talking about how we work in this new way of working, right? It's like more talking about process instead of just like falling into line and climbing up the ladder and checking the boxes.
1: Yeah, I don't think we have enough meta-conversations, enough conversations Mm -hmm. about the conversations we need to have. I think that too often teams just fall into routines and then do things the way they've always done them, as opposed to saying, okay, if we've got a team of five or six people, let's try to figure out who is the best person to lead on each of our projects.
0: Okay, we have talked holacracy and self-management... I mean, honestly, I feel ridiculous just saying self-management out loud. Anyway, after the break, Adam and I talk radical transparency. This is a workplace trend I have real issues with. Plus, my co-founder, Jen Poyant, dials in. We'll be right back. It's ZigZag. I'm Anoush. And when the show Silicon Valley featured radical transparency or radical candor, as it's also called, off the bat, I had to tell Adam, I'm not a huge fan of this trend. Radical candor is the ability to challenge
1: directly and show you care personally at the same time.
0: I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's basically like telling people what you really think. Is that pretty much what it is, like, (laughs) essentially?
1: (laughs) I wouldn't define it that way, but I think that's the way it often gets warped, yes.
0: Okay, what should it be at its purest form?
1: I think what it should be is giving people information that could help them in the long run, even if it might hurt them in the short run.
0: Okay, and the story, I believe, that gets told is Kim Scott, a woman who was working at Facebook, and Sheryl Sandberg— or no, this was at Google, actually, and her boss at the time— gave her some feedback. Is that the sort of story? Can you tell that story for us?
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting because having worked closely with Cheryl for a number of years, I've seen her do this in a way that is is so important and necessary. And then also having spent many months uh, studying Bridgewater, the company that takes radical transparency to the biggest extreme that I've found, I've really shifted my view on this. So the Kim story is... She gave a presentation and and Cheryl very gently gave her some feedback and said, You might want to try to use fewer ums and uhs, and and Kim kind of blew it off and didn't think it was a big deal. And and Cheryl said, you know, I, I really think you should pay attention to this. And Kim was still not quite hearing it. And finally, Cheryl just looked at her and said, When you do that, you sound stupid. And I don't Ouch. want people to think that you're dumb. Kim is so grateful for that because it was the tough love she needed to really hear the message. And, you know, it ended up really helping her as somebody who does a lot of speaking and communication. And I think that the reality is that sometimes the kid gloves that we we use when we deliver feedback prevent people from actually hearing the message and taking it as seriously yeah. as they should. And I think the, the sad thing is that as the feedback giver, we're usually more interested in trying to preserve our own reputation, right? I don't want this person Mm. to think that I'm a jerk. Yes. Then we are in actually trying to help them learn and improve. Kim would say that you have to care personally if you're going to challenge directly. If you're just going around saying like, hey, I think you sound stupid, then that's just obnoxious aggression. And so in her terms, radical candor is when you are genuinely trying to help. And I think That has to be already built into the relationship in order for this to be a skill that anyone should practice. I guess the way I think about it personally now is if I'm on the receiving end of the feedback, I would always rather that somebody else errs on the side of telling me too much rather than too little. I think otherwise it's really easy to fall into a a trap of groupthink or to just become complacent. And so I always want to know how I can get better, even if it's not fun to hear it. And I've become a huge fan, even though at first I thought it was pretty mean.
0: Okay, different point of view. I think this might be bullshit because, <laughs> and I'll tell you why, I worry that it ends up being that there are the people who are in power who are saying, oh, when I give you feedback and I am brutally honest, oh, it's just radical candor. It's just sorry. (laughs) But actually, the one key thing that seems to be crucial to radical candor is empowering people of a lower status in a workplace to also be able to deliver it. I've kind of heard whispers that at some of the places where this stuff is being used, it's like great for the people on top, not so (laughs) great for the people on the bottom who don't feel like they can be as radically transparent.
1: Yeah, so that, I've seen that happen too. And when I see that happen, I say, okay, this is not a problem with the concept. It's a problem with the implementation and with the fragile egos Mm -hmm. of the people who are implementing it at the top. Yeah. So the point of being radically transparent or candid is not to have more information flow downward. Warby Parker has a really interesting way of of making that happen that's kind of more tech enabled. So you know how lots of companies have suggestion boxes? Warby's view is that people are pretty excited to give suggestions. What they're afraid to do is point out problems. Ah. And, you know, in a lot of cases, I hear leaders say, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. Because they don't want people to whine or complain. Yes.
0: I got that advice when I was 23 years old, and it was the best advice I'd ever gotten, I think. Yeah. I think it was manipulative advice, but it was good advice nonetheless. You know what I mean?
1: (laughs) Yeah, totally. I think it's good advice for an individual career, but it's horrible advice for running a successful organization. Because
0: Ah. if people
1: can only speak up when they have a solution, you as a leader are never going to hear about the biggest problems that are just too complicated for any one person to figure out how to solve. Mm,
0: That's a good point.
1: And so I actually think we need a culture where people can surface problems even before they figured out a solution. And so the Warby Parker way of doing this is they have a, instead of a suggestion box, it's a problem box. Problem box, a safe space for workplace grievances. Every other week, senior leaders vote on which of those problems are strategically important And then if you want to fix one of the more important problems, you can actually make it part of your job to fix it. And I think that is a simple thing that every company should do to become a little bit more transparent.
0: Okay, so here's what I'm thinking when you're saying that. I'm like, well, that'd be easy. Just add a Slack channel. We have a team, right? And we are all over the place. And why not just add a Slack channel that's like problem spotted? And like you say, don't put pressure on them to solve it because that's really on us as the owners of the company. But do you think that it should be anonymous? Maybe not.
1: So there's a lot of research on that question and it seems to be the case that the answer depends on on your culture and in particular how much psychological safety exists. So if people feel like, okay, if I raise a problem or even criticize you, it's not going to be held against me, it's fine to let people identify themselves when they surface the problem. If you have less psychological safety and people are constantly living in fear of speaking yeah. up, that's when I'd be more likely to go anonymous.
0: I've noticed that I think women in the workplace in particular are having this conversation a lot. This idea that women of different generations in the workplace communicate differently. I'm over 40, and so I came up in the media world when, like, it was pretty rough. When you got feedback, it came fast and hard, and you dealt with it and you moved on, and I – I think that I have softened a little bit. I know that we're in a media environment where I have just as much to learn about the way people communicate and the way that we get our news and all those things from people way younger than me. I have a lot to learn. But I've also noticed that, like, there's sometimes an issue with communication style that I think I'm being just normal and straightforward with my feedback and that I come across as maybe a little too uh, blunt.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure that there's a clear answer to whether this is a generational phenomenon or not. This is also, at some level, a kind of a normal human response to criticism, right? Mm-hmm. Is to immediately defend yourself. Right. And I think that we could probably all get a little bit better at how we deliver it. So, one of my favorite experiments that Greg Walton led was an experiment where you give people negative feedback. And it turns out that if you just say 19 words beforehand, people are about 40% more open to hearing the criticism. Huh. And the, the 19 words are roughly, I might do 18, but it's going to be close. Um, roughly, I'm giving you these comments because I have very high expectations of you right. and I'm confident you can reach <gasps> them.
0: That's good for parenting too, or your marriage.
1: <laughs> Try it at your own risk. I think what it does is it changes the tone of the conversation, right? I'm not judging you. I'm not attacking you. I'm trying to help you. Yeah, It's what I would expect a coach to say.
0: I will say that I have really tried, when I give criticism, to preface it with something that I liked. I've really made a conscious effort to do that. So it's good to hear that it works. That's great. Okay, I have a question for you, Adam. You work in a, an academic institution, which has its own rules. But I'm curious, as to someone who is part of a podcast team, how does your team
1: work? I think the thing that we've probably learned about, about virtual collaboration or any kind of remote team is it's helpful to build trust face-to-face at the beginning. And so when onboarding a new person, you actually want to make sure that you've traveled together. If you and I, Manush, were gonna to work together, we'd be much better off having one five-hour meeting than we would having five one-hour meetings. Because those five one-hour meetings that are spread out, mm. we can stay at the surface and never really get to know each other. Whereas if we're gonna sit down for five hours, at some point we're gonna let our guards down. We're gonna end up building trust and getting to know each other on a deeper level. And so we took that and ran with it and said, okay, when we bring in um when we hired a new producer, Jessica, for example, to join us this season. One of the first things we did was we actually went on a recording trip together which was just such a great way to begin figuring huh. out okay what are my weaknesses what are her strengths what are effective ways for us to collaborate
0: The retreat thing is real. The retreat matters like going away for a day or even two days with your team. Yeah, you're right. It just like it changes the dynamics. It does, the, and I think the realness can happen.
1: I think sometimes though the retreats are um they're too focused on just team building as opposed to saying, you know what? one of the best ways for us to learn how to work together is actually to work together. And so I'm a big fan. If you're going to do a two- or (laughs) three-day retreat, I'd say you spend half that time actually working and the other half, you know, getting to know each other, but also debriefing and reflecting on what kinds of practices are working for you and which ones aren't.
0: Okay, last question for you. Looking at work, I mean, I read some guru book, management book that was like, there's always going to be a trade-off between the organization and the individual. Do you think that that belief is being questioned now, that actually the individuals, whether it be their health or their mind or the sense of meaning, matters more, that it's actually good for business? Is that something that you think is happening?
1: It's a complicated question because, look, the the evidence is overwhelming that if you want to improve the quality of somebody's performance at work – One of the easiest ways to do that is to make sure that they find their jobs meaningful. And that might involve uh, helping them work on something that matters more, that has more of an impact on clients or customers or colleagues. It might involve connecting those dots so they can see the people who their jobs help, which is something I spent a lot of my career studying. Or it might involve uh, giving them the autonomy to figure out what they want to work on that they find meaningful. I think where this is tricky is when you start to align the individual job with the organizational mission. And I think the challenge for every leader is to try to figure out, okay, how do I make sure that individual jobs are meaningful to people, but also that they work toward helping the organization advance whatever its purpose is, either to create a product that helps people or a service that's useful. And I think that that's where a lot of breakdowns happen. I guess the leaders I admire the most are the ones who don't see a tension there inherently, but recognize that oftentimes there is a conflict and you have to be really thoughtful about how to create alignment there. And I don't have a magic bullet, but if I did, I would definitely be spreading it everywhere I could.
0: Well, you've given us all some great ways to get maybe a little closer to closing that gap. So thank you so much, Adam.
1: Oh, no. Thank you for having me.
2: I need to plug in headphones so I can't hear you, right? Into the computer? Oh. Uh, uh,
0: fuck. fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on. Hang on. Uh, record. Okay, it's Manouche coming to you now from our little office where the sound quality is not that great. And uh, we're Jen has been joining me less and less because she's been working remotely and uh, is actually joining us now via video conferencing call uh, from the Rockaways in New York.
2: Hi, Jen. Hello. If you guys hear a plane go by, it's because the Rockaways are right next to JFK. So enjoy that ambient audio during this conversation.
0: Jen, you and I have been working remotely more and more because as you've talked about on shows past, your commute sucks, but also I've been traveling a ton. What do you think our entire team is pretty much remote now? Like Matt, our sound engineer actually lives a block away from you. And one producer lives in North Carolina. The other lives in New Jersey. What do you think about running a remote team
2: based I think, on
0: what you heard from Adam Grant say?
2: So I think there are pros and cons to it based on what he said as well. I think it requires a level of organization. And I think also I've been thinking about the hierarchy conversation you guys had, like the Mm. holacracy versus self-management. And it requires our remote workers to be a little bit of both, right? Like they need to understand how to self-manage. And we rely on Slack, uh, which is like a communication tool for teams and offices a lot more than I think we would probably rely on it if we were all in an office together.
0: No, for sure. Yeah.
2: So like they, you know, you and I were kind of traditional in the sense that like everybody reports to you and I and everybody understands that. They seem, everybody, they seem all fine
0: with that. S- all six of us.
2: <laughs> yeah. And they seem fine with that, but they also got to work together because they're a team and, um, and we all have to stay in communication enough to know what's going on. And, you know, sometimes I feel like it works like a dream and it definitely benefits. I think all of our lot personal lives, I guess, or like work-life balance, the, that work-life balance aspect of us all not having to commute into one place, you know, to coordinate. But there are trade-offs, clearly. There's more misunderstandings. What, yeah. What are the trade-offs? <laughs> well, I mean, I think- Go that, ahead.
0: Tell them the example from today.
2: <laughs> so we had booked, and I think this was done a long time ago, but somebody booked time for you to go into a studio to record and it was like halfway into our regular meeting time we have a team meeting on monday mornings at 10 30 and everybody gets on and that's when we coordinate to make sure that we're all on the same page when it comes to like all the different episodes we're working on and we're working on a lot of different episodes right now so that that meeting is pretty key to make sure we're all moving in the right direction but you had to go halfway through which is fine you know but then we were trying to catch you up on, yeah,
0: but it wasn't like I was going to get a manicure. I was
2: going. Yeah, you were going to like...
0: <laughs> you you were, to go record,
2: to literally like three, record some of the convers- episodes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like some of the episodes that we were actually talking about during that meeting. So, and yeah, I definitely was not implying you were going to get your nails done. <laughs> it's just a reflection of how busy you are and how busy we all are. And I, you and I talked on the phone later and I was like, can we not schedule the tracking during those meetings? Because like then we tried various people tried to like update you in a way that was pretty disorganized and it wasn't their fault. Everybody's role is a little different and they're all trying to get answers and they're trying, to, you know. So the coordination of a team remotely is it has its challenges. So you, you were left like feeling confused and frustrated, understandably. And I was left trying to like explain how that happened. And part of it was us all trying to communicate over Slack, which is just, there's a lot to be It's harder to read through the lines. It's easier to get frustrated with each other. It's easier to miss stuff when you don't have that voice or like eye contact to say like, oh, well, that's why that decision got made that way. Even though we talked about this four days ago on the phone, things have changed in these two particular ways. You can't get into that over Slack.
0: Yeah, I miss the synchronicity of working in person. I think, you know, there's something about when a team is together in body that you get all on the same wavelength. You're all eating your meals around the same time. You all, like, are experiencing the same light in the same room. I don't know, just yeah. all of those very, like, physical things. And, for example, during our meeting this morning, I had to use that time in the meeting to walk to the studio. So right. I was walking and, like, you know, who knows, maybe somebody else was, uh, while they thought they weren't needed on the call, were was answering an email. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's or, just-
2: Yeah, exactly. Or, like, I wanted to help record that call so we could actually give people a list, like a listen into it and then I couldn't and then I was all stressed out because I was like in a coffee shop right we're not all we're not completely present as much as we try to be in those meetings today was I think a little different like mo- sometimes we're all settled into our little remote desks and so happy to see each other but today felt stressful <laughs> I think
0: and, you know, based on a lot of what Adam said and what we've learned from talking to other people, we decided that we wanted to have an in-person get-together. So um, we've set aside a day in May where we are all going to be together in body and spirit. Yeah. Uh, a, and think- a day to work, as Adam said, not just to like do trust falls, but to work together so that we understand each other's work rhythms a little bit better. And I think ours, our conference calls will be better for it
2: going forward. I totally agree. And I also think, I've just been thinking a lot about the management conversations that you guys had, uh, just about how... Oh, yeah? I, I I mentioned to you over Slack last night that I didn't have any... When I first became a manager, I had had no formal training. They were just like, now yeah, you are out of the union. You are not just like a, a worker bee. You are now managing people and you will make more money for that. But nobody... You mean back at public radio? Yes. And no one pulled me aside and said, here's some workshops that we want you to take, or here's some reading, nothing, like no management training whatsoever. And it really led me down some to make some big mistakes, I think, when I was first learning the ropes of how to do that. And part of that was a cultural issue at the station that, at WNYC that they've, they've since publicly noted was not healthy, and they've since implemented actual management training that I took later on. But I mean, something as simple as them saying, do you have a weekly call scheduled weekly call with your employees or with the people that you manage. And I, I was like oddly resistant to it. And even today, you know, we, we bounce around with our, with my management calls. I tend to call Marcy and, and Maria on a, almost on a daily basis, but I, I know I need to like re-implement that just like an actual weekly check-in where we make sure that everyone's Feels like they're moving in the direction that they want to move in, and that the company wants to move in as well. That we're all moving together. So it's, the, it's those small things. But I, I, definitely made some mistakes early on, and I think I learned from them. And I, and I tried to be the best manager I could possibly be. But it's really challenging when you're, when, especially when you're trying to run your own business.
0: <laughs> I had a similar experience in that when I was like 27 or 28, the BBC was like, "Go run a foreign bureau. Oh, and by the way, when you're there, please fix the correspondent who's there." And obviously, having like a very yep. difficult time. She'd been in a lot of war zones. And uh I was out of my depth, completely out of my league. And I, in the end, decided to quit being in management because I had such a bad experience and was like, F this. I'm going to be the reporter. I'm not going to be the bureau chief. So I don't know.
2: God, it took me a long time to learn those lessons. And it's so it's fascinating to hear Adam talk about the fact that there's no one right answer necessarily and that things are changing rapidly when it comes to management philosophy and and how things can work particularly in capitalism like in you know he, he mentioned Zappos and Morningstar and I like hearing about those ideas and I don't know seeing what works. Yeah, me too. All
0: right. And will I see you this week? Oh yeah. Well, I, I'm going to see yeah, you Wednesday. Yes, Wednesday. Right? Yep.
2: And then I will be in Brooklyn tomorrow but I think you're at Ted like the whole, I have another kind of the whole thing then.
0: Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, you have to come near my neighborhood because you have now go to my hairdresser. Yep. My kids thought that was hilarious. They're like, "She's going to see Flumi now. I really Java. love her. I she's can't great. Go anywhere." And my, else. my husband was like, "Because she's in the family. That's why."
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: that's sweet. Don't that's sweet. Okay. Speaking of which, this idea of work and meaning, many of you have already responded to a question that we posed a couple episodes ago, but if you haven't, please take a minute and think about this question. How do you define success these days? Is it hitting a certain number on your tax return? No judgment. That's fine. Or maybe it's having flex time so you can take your kid to soccer, which Jen, I think you have to go do
2: pretty soon. Um, In like five minutes. Oh yeah.
0: Okay. Maybe you, I'll finish up. Maybe mm-hmm. you are trying to pay back loans. Whatever it is, however you are defining success, we would love to hear from you. We are still compiling the results, so please record a voice memo, email us at zigzag at stable G. That is zigzag at stable G. Also, hopefully you're signed up for the newsletter I send out every other Thursday. I've got links and a special note for you sign up on our gorgeous new website, stableg.com is the place to do that. Okay. Jen's got to take a kid to soccer. I got to go make dinner. Good job running this company, Jen. This episode was produced by me and Jen Poyant. David Herman is our composer. Matt Boynton is our audio engineer and sound designer. Maria Wordle is our production coordinator. Many thanks to Anya Zizik and Dan DeZula too. Zigzag comes from Stable Genius Productions. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Anish Samardi. Thank you so much for listening.
2: Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Now I can hear you, Anish. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. Sweet. All right. So Um, I'm I'm trying to
0: record, but it says I need to record. Please request record permission from the meeting host, but I am
2: the host. That's what I saw this morning, but I thought you were the meeting host. What
0: the fuck? No. I I am the host,
2: dickhead.